I don't know if you've seen this series, but one of my favorite series to watch on Netflix uh, is The Walking Dead. So I don't know, they've been around for 12 years now. They're in season 12. It's been around a long time. And if you haven't watched that, let me briefly tell you what it is. It's a zombie apocalypse. It's an apocalyptic story of the earth and what's happened. And um, zombies kind of take over. Now, I don't like science fiction. I really don't. So my mom actually said, you'll like this. And I was like, no way. I don't want to see all this sci-fi stuff. But I loved it. I've loved it for a long time, last four or five years. So um, anyway... It is, uh, but here's the premise that uh, a, a virus supposedly, that the writers have never really said how it started. They've held that hand close. But the, really the premise is this, that possibly a virus has come maybe from space and has, has contaminated all humans. And if you die, this, this, uh, when you die, this virus will make your body kick in a brain wave and you kind of just wake up as a zombie and just only kind of crave to eat and walk around. It only gets the flesh kind of moving. So as people die, they're coming back to life, and they're just zombies. And if you get bitten by one of them, you'll get you'll die and turn into a zombie too. So it's happened, and the whole world is under an apocalypse. I, I promise you, in season one, when when COVID hit, <laughs> the two weeks that nobody was driving outside my street on uh, Main Street, I was like, oh my goodness, this is uh, the Walking Dead is happening. But but anyway, um, but here, and I'll, I'll pull out illustrations from it. You, should, you can read about it. I can't tell you a ton about The Walking Dead. But in the end, here's, here's the summary. Is that uh, the, those that survive and are not infected, as the world is going you know, in chaos and destruction everywhere, uh, a group of people begin to survive, and they're trying to figure out how to live life. And what the series chronicles is these people first try to survive, and they really try to figure out what is meaning and what are we supposed to do as they grow in life now that we've been infected by this virus on earth. And it's an it's a t- incredible struggle, even like... Does government, they have to reestablish government and community. I mean, you can just see all these, what do human beings do when there's nothing left? So let me just say this. Uh, we have, we, in a sense, we, we, we really have had an apocalypse. Uh, there was a day that a virus entered our world, and it was called sin. And since sin has come, uh, destruction and pain, and it's been very difficult to live in this world. And in a sense, we struggle to try to figure out what does it mean to live with meaning in this world? And that is the, um, that is the story uh, of, of our lives more than you know. The, the Walking Dead is, is kind of paralleling what it's, it's really kind of that way already. And, um, and so uh, here's just what I want to say is that we're all living in an infected world looking for gain. We too are trying to figure out what is the meaning of life. And that's what, um, that's what Ecclesiastes, the teacher, is. Whether it's Solomon or someone as a persona of Solomon, he's looking at this world that's infected under the sun with, uh, with sin and its fallenness and saying, can meaning be found here? And, uh, and he asks really honest questions. And he asks really hard questions. He observes the world. And can you find meaning here? And the language it uses is gain. So those of you who are catching up with this, it means that can I find gain here? under the sun. And we, and here's the premises, we, the problem is, is that we, this morning, we're looking a little bit further in part two, but the problem is, is that we do look for things of the wrong places uh, to look for meaning in life. Now, Ecclesiastes lists a bunch of them. We're only going to look at three today. Last week, we kind of looked at the uh, why they don't satisfy and the limits of all things we look to, but this week, we're going to look at three, three particular places that are the wrong places to look for meaning of life. And what 
uh, on what the teacher has to say about that. And the outline of that is wisdom, work, and wealth. Right? So Amy was very gracious to read those long passages. But those three are wisdom, work, and wealth. And we'll see um, that we are infected with... Uh, we are all infected and we're looking... If we look here, it's the wrong place to look. Okay? Um, let me pray. God, would you help us as we look to wisdom... Uh, and wealth, work and wealth this morning. Would you help us to see the futility of it? But you also, Father, I pray that in the end, you also remind us of where to look and what to look for. But God, may we learn the lessons. We, uh, Father, I am so amazed uh, of the centuries ago and the thousands of years ago that this particular book was written, and yet it feels like it was written today. And it feels like we, it is so relevant for everything that we experience every day. So I thank you, God, for the power of your word and, the, and its um, everlasting, eternal uh, power and relevance. And so, God, would you, this morning, would you speak to our minds and our hearts and our hands uh, as we come to your word together as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll first look to wisdom and... Um, and this is from the end of chapter 1, and you'll see there, uh, starting with verse 13 through, seven, through, through 17, the passage we, uh, through 18, you'll see that uh, there's two parts, and we'll first look at this. First, uh, the teacher says, I'm trying to figure out the meaning of life, and he tries this. He says, I'm going to use wisdom to live in this life under the sun. If I just take wisdom and apply it and I apply it to the world, then maybe I'll find meaning, okay? That if I think rightly and do it. Now, I want you to see, notice in the verses, he says, and I applied my heart in verse 13. And then when he gets to verse 16, he said, I said in my heart. And then in, he says, in my heart, I had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And then in verse 17, he says, he applied his heart again in a different way relating to wisdom. This is a sincere effort and, uh, that he's trying to do. It is not just a whimsical kind of thought. I am thinking about this, which all of us need to be thinking. I'm applying it to my heart and trying to see if wisdom itself, if I use it correctly, will that bring meaning for my life? Can I figure out the world with my own wisdom and with intellect, and will that help me understand medium. So he does that. And so in verse thir- you see in verse 13, he says that the first way he tries to use wisdom, he says he uses it to search out by wisdom. You see that? So he takes wisdom and thinks the way I can find meaning is you just think about it well uh, here under uh, the sun or under the heavens. And he tries it. And uh, notice that he starts to conclude it's unhappy business that God has given us. Like even to do this is an unhappy business. But um, he lands and like this doesn't work. And notice how he says that. He finds this, uh, this proverb is quoted uh, there in uh, verse 15. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What he realizes is this, is that I set out to be smart about life and to think about it well and apply wisdom and use it in this world, and I encountered things that I couldn't straighten out that were very crooked. I couldn't even count them, all the missing ingredients that were needed to make them right. What they were lacking, it was infinite. I couldn't meet the answer. And so that was what he concluded. Meaning, I set out in life to do something, and as I began to try to use my wisdom, I realized that although as a country we may try to build peace, and we may try to create uh, a place where we can live with no peace, I realized that war still comes all around us. And I'm powerless to do anything about it. I can't make the crooked things straight. Multiple examples I could use, I'll use in a minute. So he tries to use wisdom, all right? 
then secondly, uh, he said in verse 16, he said, then he tried, I said in my heart, I have acquired wisdom. So he's like, maybe what I need is not to apply wisdom, but maybe I just need to gather all the wisdom I can. If I know everything, then I'll be able to figure out meaning in life. If I just gather and in the know. And notice what he tries to do that in verse 17. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So you can see he's like, I try to know everything. Not just the good things, but the bad things as well. I just tried to increase those. And, um, but where did he land? In verse 18, he tells us, For with much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Here's what he's concluded. He says, the more wisdom I gathered, the more data that I gathered, I became more convinced that there was lots of sorrow. The more I know, the more bad I kind of conclude that it is. Yeah, there's good, but there's lots of vexation and difficult things that happen in life. And he said, it just, it just didn't help to have all the knowledge. And it's interesting, he changes from wisdom to knowledge. I thought if I knew everything, or as much as I, could, as I could know, then I'd be okay, and meaning would be found. Now, and it just brings it. Well, if you remember when we studied Proverbs, um, one of the things we would say in general as you study the Proverbs, which is different than Ecclesiastes as a wisdom book, it's a lot more practical. And we said that Proverbs tries to teach you how to live practically in the world. If you do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that, in general, things will go for you. It's a path. But what we also said when we were teaching uh, Proverbs last spring was this, is if Proverbs is not a formula. Not everything goes as it should. And so that's basically what happens here. He's like, wisdom, should you be wise in life? Of course. But I realize that wisdom has its limits. It's not a path to guarantee everything goes well. In general, we should apply it. But I still bump up against things in life that are so out of my control that wisdom doesn't help. As a matter of fact, if I try to gain more things, it just doesn't actually brings more sorrow and knowledge. That is a true principle. Has it ever happened with you? Think about when you become a parent, those of you who have been parents before. When you start the parenting, the way we approach it is like, I'm going to use as much wisdom as I possibly can to be a good parent. I had great intentions, and I've worked at it, but it just didn't take long for a physical heart ailment to pop up at age three, or, a, or um, uh, I couldn't get somebody to stay asleep, or just different personalities stronger. I mean, it just didn't take long for me to see that my wisdom couldn't execute and guarantee a formula that I always wanted. The same is true um, in all kinds of ways. So many people, we set out to change the world, and the, we may experience that in your job. I'm going to, when I get my job, I'm going to do this and do this, and we set out and we use wisdom and try to think that. that. If we use it, it will fix everything, and I'll have meaning. And, um, and really, guys, it's really such an arrogance, and, that, and that's kind of the point of, of, the, of, of Ecclesiastes, is that, guys, we've, we can be duped into life to thinking that we're smart enough to figure everything out, and if you just let us know and gather knowledge, then we'll be okay. 
And we can rule the world like we want. And God is, gives us Ecclesiastes and these hard things like time and chance that happen to us to remind us, hey, 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 don't be duped as you live faithfully that you're king. You're not king. You can't make the crooked straight. Does gathering too much wisdom, in a sense, or knowledge bring sorrow for us? Sure. All the time. Think about what Facebook brings for families. All right? Here's one for us. If you're connected on Facebook with all your friends all over the southeast and multiple states and all that like we are, you get to see everybody's vacations. I have knowledge of thousands of vacations. What does that knowledge do to us? It makes us have sorrow. Why can't we? It looks like everybody's going on vacation. We're not. We can't afford it. How do they get to go there? We can't go there. I mean, right, it brings sorrow and strife. Does not the kid who goes home from school, used to, you used to go home from school, right, and you wouldn't see those people until the next day. If you had to call on the phone when I did, so the dad might answer. It was one phone, and we all shared it, right? But what do you go home with now? You go home, and you go home, and you have the knowledge of everything all your friends are doing, young kids, all day, all day long. Where they're going, what they're thinking, who's with, who you're with, who you're not, who's, were they doing that without me? I mean, you have so much more knowledge. What does that knowledge bring? You think you'll want to know. In the end, it always brings sorrow. Some sort of sorrow. Why? We weren't made to be able to know everything. And knowledge will not bring the meaning and the hopeful hope that you hope it will. That's the point. Don't look to wisdom. It's like chasing the wind. Can we use knowledge in a way? Is there a right thing? Sure. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, by the way, in The Walking Dead, um, no matter how much effort they chose to be wise, to avoid the walkers, which are the zombies, and do this and build, no matter how wise and smart they tried to be in this apocalyptic world, nothing ever went as it should. And then they always felt a sorrow because they thought, man, if we could just find out, are there any other communities out there in America that are making it? And they'd say, oh, we need to go to this land, and we go find out about that place. And guess what? Every time they found out more, in one way they're excited, and guess what it brought? More knowledge brought more sorrow. So the meaning of life can't be found in it. Then, so we turned into um, uh, Work. And uh, we turn to 4, verses 4, 1 through 8. Now, a couple of caveats here. Uh, you notice probably in your studies this week, which are our Bible studies or connect groups that we call are going through Ecclesiastes the week before, those of you who are visiting with us. So our whole church is studying whatever we're, I'm preaching on this week during the week. And so I kind of bring it to a, a cumulative kind of thought here at the end of the week, preaching. Uh, but 1 through 3 wasn't in our study this week. And I thought I'd, I would add that. Uh, we only had verses 4 through eight, but I thought I would add one through three, and I want to tell you uh, why. And um, first is that, um, and it's really hard to when you're studying Ecclesiastes. The previous section talks about oppression, and that's what Chris is going to be preaching on next week. But they blend and they run over between each other, and it transitions here to work and 
and uh, wealth, and you never know kind of like what's the distinctive. The commentaries don't ever know. Is it start here, this finish here? They debate over what topic starts here and where's the transition happening. Are they overlapping? I think personally it is wrapping up the oppression of the previous chapter and that whole story. But I also see kind of the train of thought maybe in the teacher as he moves into talking about work and that. Because here, think about it. He talks about in verses 1 through 3. You'll see there. He says, again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. And what I mean is when people are oppressed, what are they usually oppressed to do? They're oppressed to work for something. They are used uh, to, their work to use to produce for the oppressor. And so uh, you'll, you'll see that. Well, I thought it was about wealth. Well, at the end in verse 8, it sort of kind of talks about wealth. But I think what I want to highlight from this particular thing is the striving after something is the point. And um, what you'll see First, in verses 1 through 3, oppressors will do whatever they can and oppress people maybe in work to get the gain that they want. All right? That's in verses 1 through 3. But then in 4 through 7 is another kind of work, and you'll see there as it gets to that uh, in verse 4, Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity. So as he begins thinking about, or specifically talking about work here, he says the only reason people work, or not, not the only, he highlights one reason. We work for a lot of reasons. But here he says people work out of envy, meaning you have something that I don't and I want that. Or I wish I could have it. Or I wish I was like you. Or I wish I had what you have. And so it's a motivator or it affects how you work. Now, I would, one way to think about that is envy, just like oppressing, is to exploit someone else in order to get what you want. If you have a friend who envies you all the time, one of the ways you can they have envy of you <laughs> is that they never celebrate what goes well for you. But envy is, I want what you have, and um, I wish that I had it. Well, it motivates him, uh, and it's a motivator here. Now, look, it's an odd phrase here, and um, I do want to... But I hope you can kind of see the connection there. And Envier, he, he doesn't want good for you. He, he's using you as motivation to get what he wants. Does that make sense? It motivates him to work. Maybe you can talk about it being competition or what. But notice what it says in verse, in verse um, 5. The fool, so after this, uh, this, this work, you are motivated for your work out of um, envy, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So some think maybe he has so much envy, he realizes I can't have what you have. So he just closes his hands and he doesn't work. He's lazy. He does nothing. Potentially, it could be that he's just, also you could say he's exploit, lazy people exploit people because they ride off everybody else's stuff. Does that make sense? So you can see that, they, um, that he folds his hands and he eats his flesh. That's kind of imagery there that you're just kind of the idea. You just fold your hands and do nothing. And um, uh, it's like in the Proverbs, it says a little folding of the hands will bring destruction upon you. So he's lazy. He does nothing. That's his envy as he looks to work. But then the other is better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So here's the other thing envy can do to motivate you in your work and all of a struggle. This is that you could have, one sense, you could have envy and it makes you say, I can't ever have that. I'm lazy. I'm just going to ride, right? Or you can put both hands in, and I think that's the imagery here, and you're a workaholic. Not one hand, but both hands. 
and I'm going to work and work and work. A workaholic works at the expense of people. He finds himself alone and having no value to his relationships. That's what the rest of the passage shows us. He's become so consumed. Um, but notice in there it says, I have a handful of quietness. And so you can either have a handful of quietness or you can put both hands in. And this is what I think. Here's what I think is going on there. I looked at it from a bunch of different angles and it's different thoughts around it. You could say that the right way to live in balance, if you will, is to neither be lazy, but neither to be a workaholic, but to just kind of have a balance of quietness or rest and a work balance. But I think what is really that, that hand of quietness probably, most some think, means contentment. That, that even I'm content in my work, that I have a quietness to me as I hold in one hand my work. Now notice, one hand frees up another hand to do something else. And some think that the reason we're not told that is because, yes, that's the point. If you have quietness in your work, a contentment in what you have, then you're free to help and do other things. But in chapter 4, there's no mention of God in Ecclesiastes. Every other chapter but 4 and 11 have a mention of God in it. In this chapter, he doesn't kind of say, look to the hand of God or have enjoyment. It's interesting. His correction or his offering of a solution is actually in the next verses, in verse 9 and 10, where he says this. He says, don't look to work. There's a better way to kind of think about it. And he says this, that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. That was the same thing that happened in verses 7 and 8. That the old, verse 8, uh, verse eight the old, uh, he says, for whom am I tolling for and depriving myself of pleasure? He's like, the question is who? Do you see that? When you give yourself to work in a way, work as a means to the gain that you want in life, you'll either exploit people, you'll become lazy, and that's selfish, or you'll be a workaholic, and that's selfish. You won't have quietness. <laughs> it's better to value relationships. Two's better than one. Don't forfeit the relationships that you have. Now you say, well, why didn't he take us to God? Well, he does other times. But remember this. When people ask Jesus, how do you summarize the law, the Ten Commandments? Do you remember how he summarized the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law of God, the tasks, if you will, or people think of it that way, the law of God was summarized relationally. Love God and love people. And so the teacher, in one sense, here, he offers that don't give yourself to work and whatever gain it might get you, whether it be riches or security or whatever you want, don't look to work in a way that you forfeit the relationships around you. Don't let it oppress people. Don't be lazy and rhyme with people. Don't be a workaholic and have no relationships. Two is better than one. There is some meaning, and ultimately the meaning of our relationship have the greatest in Christ. And lastly, we will look to um, um, <coughs> uh, let me, well, let me read this one quote about 
about oppression. A guy named Ian Proven, a commentator, says this, Accumulation, seeking after profit. What oppression is, is seeking for profit without regard to the nature, needs, and the rights of other people. It's self-absorbed. So as you watch uh, The Walking Dead, (laughs) you'll find oppressors like Negan. You'll find lazy people who just don't want to help because we got to survive here and they just won't join in and help us build a community and build walls and put stuff to protect. They just, they're lazy. But what they also realize is they're striving to survive what's cool about the show is that they realize, you start seeing the show start saying, like, start realizing it's important how I relate. Daryl wants to get to know Carol, and Rick wants to get to know Michonne. And relationships begin to surface as a very important part of what they're doing. So it is with us. Lastly, wealth and vicious five. And this is pretty straightforward as we land the plane. Uh, after this, but uh, up to this point in verse, you see in chapter five here about wealth. So we, you can't work won't give you meaning. Well, uh, work won't give you meaning. But think of the relationships are more important. Uh, um, wisdom won't give you meaning. And then we look to wealth, and here's one place you might look. It has limits, too. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with income. Or This is also vanity. And so right out of the gate, he makes this statement. Up until this point, he's dealt with kind of institutional or uh, like national um, worship of money. The institutions and people and governments can worship money. But here it goes to the individual in verse 10, and he says that, um, that you will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth for his income. And so he won't be satisfied. There's a great quote. Most of you probably have heard this before if you're older, but John D. Rockefeller, who was at one point the richest person in the world, uh, and someone asked him the question, how much money is enough? And you know what his famous answer was? Just a little bit more. That's what enough is. And that's kind of the, the point here, that it will never satisfy. He offers a few reasons that he observes, that the teacher observes, and says, here's some reasons that I've seen under the earth why wealth won't deliver for you. Look at verse 11. First, he says uh, that when goods increase, they increase with who eat them. What he means by that is that people, it, people will take it from you. One of the reasons it doesn't last is that no matter how much you acquire, there's always people who need it. There's always people that need help. There's always people who want to buy some. There's always children and mouths to feed. <laughs> There's always um, oppressors that might take it from you. There's governments that will tax you. There's all kinds of ways. Somebody will take your money. It's interesting in The Walking Dead, whenever they acquire something, somebody, they were always fearful somebody was going to take it. People just take it. Maybe it's the lazy person who does it. But that's the scale. Somebody ends up needing it. There's always workers to pay. Then, that's one reason. People take it. Why? Reasons it won't work. The next one, verse 12, is he says that rich people or people who have a lot of money, they don't sleep well. They can't, they can't sleep well. The guy who works and works hard, he's tired, and he has a good relationship with work, and he lays down, and he has a hard labor's worth uh, work, and he sleeps well. But the, but the wealthy, those who look to wealth, they don't. They have a lot of stress in trying to keep their wealth. And that's why money is fleeting. That's why its wealth is not worth it. Uh, Derek Kidner, who's a commentator, one that I like over the years, he has said, uh, it's interesting that we pour out our money, talking about the wealthy, we pour out our money, and that's us, to undo the damage of what money and ease caused us. Meaning we get a lot of money and we sit around and do nothing. 
or less active, we do less, and then we go buy exercise machines in order to undo what the money that, that money bought for us, right? <laughs> and it doesn't happen. And then the next thing in verse 13, you'll see there why money doesn't deliver or wealth is because uh, you have a bad venture. What does that mean? Well, it was a bad investment. I had a lot of money, an investment, meaning, and most commentators believe this, that it just sometimes things happen outside your power or you make a bad investment and you can lose it in a moment. You remember when the, young, when the young, uh, younger brother went off with all of his dad's wealth in the prodigal story? Did you remember what happened? It says that a famine came. Something outside of his power came. Famines come. Stock markets crash. Interest rates go up. Things change, right? And your money can be gone like that. He said, that's another reason that wealth won't deliver. And then in verse, um, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And then notice that he says, and then a father doesn't have anything to pass on to his son. And that's a grievous, grievous sin. Because Proverbs 13, 22 actually tells us that we should, that parents should leave some sort of inheritance or make sacrifices for the next generation. But you could lose it, and he has nothing to give. Um, and then in verse 17, you can wind up as a miser and be so mad and so vexing and sick and angry. That's basically, a, this is a rich person just mad and angry, and he has all of his money, he's alone. That's kind of what the picture is of what happens. So, I don't know if you read the last quote in our book, but I want to read it to us. I didn't put it on the screen. But Tim Keller's quote about making sense of God is a fabulous quote about our wealth. That we are basically a country that has more comfort at all levels, more comfort and accessory to pleasures than any country, and some think in history. It's available to more people all the time. He says this, Studies find a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. And the more prosperous a society grows, the more common is depression. The things that human beings think will bring fulfillment and contentment don't. If we stand back to ask what we've learned about happiness over the centuries, it's a, it is striking to see our lack of progress. Think of how we have surpassed our ancestors in our ability to travel and communicate, in our accomplishments in medicine and science. Think of how much less brutal and unjust minorities and societies are today compared with even 100 years ago. In so many ways, human's life has been transformed, and yet though we are unimaginably wealthier and more comfortable than our ancestors, no one is arguing that we are significantly happier than we were before. We are struggling and seeking happiness in essentially the same way our forebears did and doing worse job of it. If we use the rise of depression and suicide as an indicator... The author of Ecclesiastes deserves the final word here. Whatever has already been and whatever will have been before, despite all our modern efforts with regard to happiness, we are simply back where we started. And the walking dead, <laughs> they start accumulating some wealth, and the communities do. And then people start taking it. And Hilltop with Maggie, who's the leader of Hilltop, is frustrated that they're making a lot of food and they need to send it to other communities because they need it. But we have it. But there's other people always needing it. And those with the greatest communities in <laughs> Walking Dead, they don't sleep well at night because they're worried about losing their community to someone else. That maybe another 
wave of zombies will come. As a matter of fact, oftentimes they, get, they realize that they got soft, and that was why things did come, because they enjoyed their pleasures. It really is, wealth is, won't deliver what we hope. So, here's the, we'll land the plane here. So, we looked at three things that we just highlighted, that there's, there's limits to them, and they, if you look to them for gain, they will not deliver what they promise. They can't satisfy your soul. Work, wisdom, or wealth. So how do I know, I think this is a question, Kevin and I discussed it this week, how do I know if I look to thing to something for gain? Now you, could, you can add to your list, we just highlighted three today. You could be anything else in the world, all right? But how do you know if you're looking to it for your gain? What does that mean? How do you know if you're doing that? Here's three or four reasons. One, I would ask, uh, to, I'll list them here. Here's how, one ways you can know. If it's affecting relationships were of the utmost priority, just affecting relationships in general, then you're looking at that thing for gain, all right? Ask the people around you. If it's affecting your relationship with them, those are close. That's one way. One way to think about it, if I know I'm looking whether to wisdom and say, hey, he's looking, at, he's looking to money and wealth or whatever, but one way you can think about it, another one is this, is, that ro- is it so robust at the expense of other appropriate pursuits in life? So is my pursuit of money or wealth so robust that I don't pursue fill in the brain? Other wonderful things that we are supposed to pursue as well. Is one so strong that it's sapping from all the other pursuits of life? Another way to do it is that is it, is it what gives you your identity? Meaning, this is who I, how I define myself. I measure myself and how I'm doing based upon this particular thing. So it could be that your, your identity is found in raising children. And is it how you're doing every day Children are a gift. They're a good thing to be enjoyed with God, right? But are they my identity in the sense that how they're doing every day affects how I think about myself or whether I'm doing well or good? Fill in the blank. If it's your job, your work, do you come home every day, whatever, define yourself? Listen, I do it. It's hard to appropriately relate to this pulpit and not define myself. Every, when I walk off today and say, I'm a good preacher because I did well today. And I'm not, I mean, you see, you know what I'm talking about. That's how you can tell if you look to it for gain. And a couple of other thoughts. If it's the missing piece, if you think of this thing, if I just had this as the missing piece in my life. Heck, we do that daily. I think if I can just get the weekend, that'll be, that's a missing piece for me. If I can just get a day off, that's my missing piece. Anything you look to that you have this language in your heart that's a missing piece, then you're looking to it for gain. That's how you know. And another one maybe is what things make you angry when you don't have them. Anger points to something that's really important to you. Is that helpful? So, so then the other question I have for us is, what will help me not look to things under the sun for gain? So then what will help me not do that? Well, I'll give you just a couple of thoughts. This is an application. The first one is, um, remember the garden. What do you mean by the garden? (laughs) Remember the story of the garden. It's the same story over and over. If we just take the things that we talked about this morning, what what did the serpent do to the woman? He separated her from the two relationships 
put distance between the two relationships that she had with God and with her husband. He moved her out alone. And then what did he do? He took something that was in the world, which was the tree of knowledge and good and evil and those trees, and he, he blurred and gave her a bad view of the things that were created. She couldn't see it correctly. And he told her, if you had the things on this earth, that's where you'll get the gain, the thing you long for. And she thought she could have it. And that story is our battle all the time. And then he tempted her with a lot of knowledge. Wasn't that the actual temptation? If you just know everything, you'll be fine. Remember that. Every struggle, it'll help you the games that we're all, you think my struggle's unique, it's not. It's the same struggle over and over and over. Ecclesiastes is just showing us that it's true. That the struggle of the garden is still going on. Next is just remember Jesus. That'll help you. And think about what Jesus did to that garden story. He first came to restore the relationships, did he not? He restored. He came to restore us to God. What sin and eating the fruit did, he came to restore the relationships. And then what did he do? He invited us into the family of God to give us healthy relationships. So what Satan separated us from, he comes to restore he says, you'll actually, this is how you'll know they're my disciples, is by their love for one another. He gives us the power to restore the things that we were separated from. And then when you start to look to the world and the fruit and things on the earth and, and don't see them rightly, he came to say, lift your head up, listen, no, 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 don't look to the bread on the earth, I'm the bread of life. No, 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 don't look to that water, I know that water tastes good, but I'm the living water, it's just a taste of me. It tastes good because it reminds you of me. I'm the only one who can satisfy you. And he says the knowledge that you really need is the knowledge of me. Intimate knowledge of me. You can't handle who I am and all I am. You can't handle that. That was the point of the garden. But I will let you know eternal life, John 7, 3, is to know me intimately. Your real security is not found by gathering data. It's by knowing the person of Jesus. So, and then lastly, I would just offer, remind us as more of a practical application. Remember the garden. Remember Jesus as you look to things. But then just remember that this is a wisdom book, and it's the nature of wisdom to not be black and white. It was funny. All of the studies that I was in, we all said, well, what do you do with money? Are you supposed to give it, take it away? The Bible says this and that. This is a wisdom book. It's just telling you. He's just Actually, he doesn't even tell you what's wrong. He just tells you this is what's true about this, that it has limits. That's what the teacher tells us. But remember that. And so what does that mean? What does it mean, wisdom? What we want is just tell me how much to give and how much to give. Just tell me how much education and knowledge I have. I just want to know the line. But that's not it. You need wisdom. And it's never the right thing. Let me put it this way. If I have a buddy and he's an alcoholic, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not one, I'm not. I have my own struggles, that's not it. Mine's probably cheeseburgers, right? I mean, but whatever.
wisdom might say for him as he processes with God and with the people around him, maybe I shouldn't walk in. He may decide I maybe shouldn't walk in a package store. That's wisdom. And that's his application. But you know what? That's not an application for me. I have a different application for something. Does he make that sense? We just long for him to tell me how to give and I just want to do it. And God says, no, this is wisdom. And to figure out how to handle knowledge and education and to figure out how to handle money and to figure out how to handle work, what you need is to be submitted to God, have people involved in your life that can bring you wisdom and help you figure it out. Every situation is different. And guess what? (laughs) I think he designs it that way so you'll be close to him because he just wants to be real close to you. So that you'll get to know him and be close to his people and experience his grace. One of my favorite verses that I have leaned on all my whole life is, or no, in the last 10 years since being a pastor is Isaiah 46, 12. It says, Actually, it's 42.16. I get it backwards. 42.16. I lead the blind man down a path he does not know. I smooth out the rough places. I bring light to the darkness. I am the Lord God. This is what I do. He purposely takes blind people who like repetitive, black and, no, they can't see, but like to know their steps and count them so they know where they're going. He takes blind people on paths they don't know so that it feels bumpy. Why? So he can show them who he is. I smooth out rough places and I bring light to the darkness. I want you to see who I am. Do you believe God? Is not withholding from you. Even his wisdom is for his fame and glory and so that he might be near to me and you because he loves us. Let's pray. God, as we respond in singing here, um, may we be a people who believes that uh, um, particularly these addressed today, that work and wisdom and wealth will never, will never give us what we want, but would you appropriately teach us to live with them as gifts and not gain, and would we be good workers who have a handful of quietness, and would we be people who do seek wisdom, but we don't seek it to, for our meaning, we seek it, Lord, to be faithful in your word, at world, and to know how to navigate it well. Would you grant us an appropriate relationship with our finances that is not black and white, but would you let it be in our, in our wealth and the things we have in a place that's surrendered to you? and leveraged for your good. Um, uh, Thank you for our time. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.